Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 17. Uh, my name is David. I uh, help shepherd the Bible study that meets uh, here on campus. That's uh, GBS. Um, yeah, and we're going through a series every week. Uh, we're looking at worldviews, and, and today we're going to look at pluralism. Uh, and let me just give you a basic definition right off the bat about pluralism. Maybe a lot of you haven't heard of that term. Maybe it sounds strange. Pluralism, as I define it, is simply this. It's any new idea or any worldview, any system of thinking, any philosophy, any idea that goes against the teaching of Scripture. Uh, There's nothing inherently wrong with new ideas. These are good. Uh, The Bible is not an exhaustive source of truth. We can appreciate doctors and dentists who uh, help us, and we can appreciate medical advancement. We can appreciate the common graces that God has given us. But if there's any idea, any philosophy, any worldview that goes against Scripture, uh, that should be uh, cast away. That should be repudiated. That should be rejected wholesale. That's what we'll call pluralism. If you just look at the world around you, you understand that there's many different faiths You can see Hinduism, you can see Buddhism, you can see all kinds of religions. We live in a world today, if we speak dogmatically or with any level of certainty about Christianity, uh, you're going to be ostracized, you're going to be alienated, you're going to be isolated. People will look at you like you're crazy. So I think this is an important topic for us to look at. We're going to look at Acts chapter 17, uh, specifically verses 16 to 34. I need to make a disclaimer at the very beginning, a confession. Don't laugh at me. I don't actually know anything about the Dodgers. This, Dodgers, this, this jersey isn't mine. If you were to ask me what number is on this jersey, I couldn't tell you. So don't, don't laugh. Don't make any reactions so I don't, I'm not thrown off. But that's just a disclaimer right off the bat. Don't know anything about Dodgers. But I do know a little bit about this topic. I hope this is helpful as we look at it. So Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 16 to 34. Now, just a little bit of the context here. Paul has been, you know, going from city to city. He's been proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And amazingly, so many people were converted. They were saved and they believed in Jesus Christ, the, the fulfillment of uh, Israel's hope for the Messiah. Uh, Paul preached this message to Jews and Gentiles. And amazingly, people came to know Christ. But the Jewish people, they hated this. Those who didn't believe in Christ, they drove Paul out of every city he went to. He was driven out of various cities, and finally he was, he was driven out. He was chased all the way up to Athens, and Silas and Timothy, his companions, were left behind. And that's the context we come in when we look at verse 16. Paul enters into Athens. Let me, let me begin with verse 16. He's not with his companions, Silas and Timothy, so keep that in mind. He's alone, and he's waiting for them. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought to not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. They interrupt his speech here. You'll notice in verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. And so Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of God. I remember a a story, it's a common analogy, maybe you've heard of it before, uh, but I think it originated in India. And the story goes that there's these six blind men in this village community, and uh, the, the community, they wanted to keep them safe, and so they keep them in this, this protected area, and they tell them all kinds of stories, all kinds of different types of stories. But the one story that really intrigued these six blind men was a story about elephants. They were really interested in what are these elephants like? They really wanted to know. And so one day, the community, after hearing them bicker all on and on and on about elephants, they decided, let's let them touch an elephant. And so they brought the six blind men to an actual live elephant. And one man, he reached out and touched the elephant. And he happened to touch his tusk. And he concluded in his mind that this elephant is like a spear. Another one of the blind men, he reached out and touched the side of the elephant. And he said, no, I think the elephant is like a wall. Still one more blind man, the third man, he reached out and touched the leg of the elephant. And he concluded, no, this elephant is like a tree. It's obvious. And then the fourth blind man, he reached out and touched the tail of the elephant. And he said, 
guys are crazy. This elephant is a rope. And then we had a fifth or a sixth blind man. He reached out and touched the ear. And he said, no, this elephant is like a carpet. It's like a fan or something like that. And so you see the moral that they would give to the story is basically that this is like religions. That there's Hinduism and there's Buddhism and there's Christianity and everybody's saying that our God is the true God and that all the other ones are false. That the God of the Bible is true or the God of Islam is true. And everybody's saying the same thing. So how do we know with certainty Christianity is actually true? How can we say that with dogmatism? How can we say that with absolute certainty? Uh, This analogy they used to show that, you know, everybody, they come into this world with limited subjective experiences. And the problem is each person is, is foisting upon the other their own limited subjective experiences and pretending like they have a corner on the truth when in reality, all of them only have a part of it and they don't see the actual elephant. This really describes our culture today and the attitude with which they uh, view Christianity, especially in any dogmatic claim for that, for that reason. And then this is the culture, this is the environment, this is the, this is the culture that Paul walks into when he walks into Athens. Uh, you see that in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked. And this passage, it, it breaks into two easy parts. We're going to look at the setting verses 16 to 21, and then we'll look at the, uh, the, the sermon. Uh, that's the rest of the passage. So just two sections here, very simple. And then from this passage, I just want to kind of extract, I want to bring out you know, a couple aspects of pluralism. I'm going to show you six. We'll go through these fairly quickly. Look at six aspects of pluralism. First one is in verse 16. I want you to notice this. He's walking through Athens. And what you need to understand is, I'm going to title this, the fact of pluralism. The fact of pluralism. As he's walking through Athens, the thing you need to know about Athens is that Athens is a pluralistic society. There are all kinds of gods and goddesses in this area, all kinds of idols. You see that in verse 16. It says he was observing the city full of idols. And another thing you need to know about Athens is that what Paul does here is he's walking into this premier university kind of culture. This was the kind of intellectual hub. This was the place of ideas. This was the place of philosophies. Uh, Maybe centuries before, they were this great military power. Rome came into control, and they're no longer the great military power they once were, but now they're this intellectual kind of paradise, this university of sorts. Paul walks into this environment, and what does he do in verse 17? He reasons in the synagogue. What he does is he proclaims Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of Israel's messianic hope. He proclaims Jesus He doesn't try to soften the gospel. He just proclaims, he reasons with them. He tries to argue the case for the singularity of Jesus. And let me begin again with the definition of pluralism, which I opened with. You know, having new ideas, new philosophies, these are not necessarily bad intrinsically. They're not necessarily bad. Uh, We we appreciate new ideas. We appreciate new philosophies. But any time it raises itself against the scripture, it needs to be rejected swiftly. If you need a kind of a key theme verse, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Turn over there with me. It's a brief verse. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. This is Paul's strategy. This is what Paul says. He wrote this. He says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 
The word there is logismos. It's thoughts, ideas, philosophies, any idea that raises itself against the truth, the knowledge of God for the purpose of obedience to Christ. That's what's really driving Paul here. And I want to show you another thing. Jesus, he, he foretold this. He, he mentions it in Matthew 24. He talks about how one day false prophets will come. Uh, this is nothing surprising. Uh, false prophets existed in Jesus' day. They existed in the early church. Jesus predicted this. So even seeing the false teaching around us, that in, this, in, in a way is just confirming what we already see in the scripture. There's nothing new there. We know that. That's not a surprise. And yet we are called as Christians to obey Philippians 2, 15 to 16. That is, we in this midst of this perverse and crooked generation, we are to shine as lights. We are to hold forth the word of God. That's how we do it. If you, high school student, if you want to shine as as a light in this dark world, you do it not by trying your best to do something, not by wearing cool clothes. It's simply holding fast the word of God and then holding forth the word of God as Philippians 2, 15 and 16 says. I was reading about a missionary, Henry Martin. Uh, he was a missionary, and he was attempting to translate the Bible into a Persian language, and he had an assistant helping him. And there's archives on the internet where you can find his actual journals that he wrote. And I found a section of his journal that I thought was incredible, and I think helps you capture some of the heart that Paul has here. This is January 16, an entry I'm reading to you. Uh, his assistant, he has a pretty hard name to pronounce. It's Mirza Sayyid Ali. I'm just going to call him Mirza. Uh, he says, Mirza told me accidentally today of a distich, that's a, uh, a, a verse, uh, a quote, made by his friend, Mizra Kahoot at Tehran, in honor of a victory gained by Prince Abbas over the Russians. And then here's the quote. The sentiment was that he killed so many of the Christians that Christ from the fourth heaven took hold of Muhammad's skirt, that's one of their prophets, to entreat him to desist, to let him go. I was cut. This is his response. Uh, He was speaking very blasphemous of of Christ. And then this is his response. He says, I was cut to the soul at this blasphemy. In prayer, I could think of nothing else but that great day when the Son of God shall come in the clouds of heaven, taking vengeance on them that know not God and convincing men of all their hard speeches which they have spoken against him. Mirza perceived that I was considerably disordered and was sorry for having repeated the verse, but asked what it was that was so offensive to me. I told him that I could not endure existence if Jesus was to be so not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always thus dishonored. And he was astonished, Mirza was. And again asked, why? If anyone pluck out your eyes, I replied, there's no saying why you feel the pain. It is a feeling. It is because I am one with Christ that I am thus dreadfully wounded. I think that's an incredible picture of somebody who so loves Christ, so united to Christ, that when his name is being blasphemed, when uh, his name is being dishonored, he personally feels the pain. You look at Paul in verse 16, he says he was, his spirit was being provoked within him. He was feeling great anger. It was this righteous kind of anger. And my question to you is, high school student, I mean, you're going to different environments. You're in high school, you're playing games, or you're playing on sports teams, whatever it is, wherever you hear Christ dishonored, you know, is your spirit dishonored? Is your spirit 
provoked? Is your spirit disturbed? Do you feel such an honor for Christ? Do you feel that you're so united to Christ that when Christ is assaulted, you personally feel the pain? David says in Psalm 69:9 that zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches that have fallen upon you have fall upon, fallen upon me. That when Christ is dishonored, when God is dishonored, David personally feels the pain. And Jesus does the same thing in John 2 when all these men were treating the temple like a business place, like a marketplace, selling their own things, selling doves, making money. Rather than worshiping God, they were treating the temple of God for self-gain. They were twisting the very purpose that the temple was designed for, that is to worship God for themselves. And Jesus was so angry that he created this scourge of cords and he whipped them and he, he destroyed the whole place where they were setting up all these tables to sell all these things. He was so disturbed in his spirit that God would be so dishonored in this way. That's the first one, the fact of pluralism. And you see the way Paul responds. Let's look at a second thing, and that is the subtlety, the subtlety of pluralism. The subtlety of pluralism, you see that in 18 to 20. Uh, it says that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were, conser- were conversing with him. And then some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? That word babbler, it's, it's this uh, kind of a derogatory word, kind of a bad word, a mocking word, a demeaning word. They're not trying to understand what Paul is trying to say. Uh, the word is, in the Greek is this word that means seed picker. Somebody who goes around, you know, picking up scraps of, of knowledge here and there and then acting like he knows what he's talking about. Basically, they're saying Paul is not sophisticated. He doesn't know what he's talking about. This babbler is coming over here and talking about these strange things, Jesus and the resurrection. And then they ask this question that seems like a genuine question when in reality, they don't care about the truth. And you learn something interesting here you learn something interesting about the way they ask the question. The question is asked not to understand the truth, but to undermine it. Do you catch that? They're asking the question not to understand the truth, but to undermine it. High school students, this is nothing new. This happens today. This happened in the beginning of time. Please turn with me to Genesis 3. I just want to show you where this began. There's nothing new. Maybe you're not familiar with this right now. You may notice that I'm speaking with a certain zeal about the topic, and it's because if you're not exposed to it right now, you will be. When you enter into college, you will be exposed to these ideas one way or another, and you really need to protect your mind. It is absolutely imperative that you understand this truth. And the Bible is the divine playbook. It gives you an insight into the mind of men And nothing changes. And you'll see that in Genesis 3. Look at Genesis 3. God had just created the world. And then look at 3. It says, now the serpent was more crafty, more clever, more shrewd than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat it from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. 
Now you notice the serpent asks a question. Nothing intrinsically wrong with the question, but what is his motive? His motive is not to understand the word of God. His motive is to undermine the word of God. He says, indeed, did God say you shall not eat from any fruit of the tree? He twists God's word. He turns it into a prohibition. He turns it into something negative. That God is somehow restrictive. He's a divine party pooper. He doesn't want you to have fun. That God is a kind of divine killjoy. He doesn't want you to enjoy life. When in reality, God gave them all the trees of the garden and said, just these trees in the middle, you shall not eat from it. And yet how cleverly the serpent twists God's word for selfish gain. You see that? I had a friend in college, my best friend actually, my four years in undergrad. We majored in the same thing and he was so special to me, not because we majored in the same thing or did the same sports or drank at the same coffee shops or studied the same major. Uh, He was so special to me because he was the one who introduced me into a Christian group at that university five, six, seven years ago now. And he was such a special person. He would disciple me every week. I loved him. I would spend breaks with his family, winter, summer. His mom even called me her son. He was such a special friend to me. And we both went to uh, the UK upon graduation. And uh, he met me at my college because he was going to a different college in the UK. And I was, I was in London and he came up to me in London and spent the night at a nearby hotel. And then we met at a, at a restaurant. And after we ate, it was a great conversation. He admits to me that he is now in a relationship with another man. And I was fairly well shocked by that because this was the guy who was discipling me every single week for four years. This was the guy who introduced me to Christianity in the university setting. And as I recounted my friendship with Kevin, I, I, w- I was amazed because, and I, was, I guess I was not so amazed because I remembered he would send me articles from time to time. And I even went back and I checked through these articles and I noticed that these articles were subtly deconstructing the truth. Uh, they were articles from the New York Times and other news agencies that would talk about morality and sexuality, but it was a, it was a unique take on the truth. It was, a, it was a different idea. It was a different philosophy. And it sounded credible. It sounded interesting. And so I would read it and we would talk about it at a coffee shop. And it was only years later that I realized all of the stuff he was reading, it was all deconstruction at work. It was all a rejection of the truth. It was all anti-God at its fundamental core. You see, he didn't just wake up one, one, uh, one morning and decide, I'm a homosexual now. That didn't happen overnight. He wasn't born that way. It was, it was days and days and days, months and months and months, years and years and years of exposing his mind to error that detracted him from the truth. And he finally claims to be a Christian still, but continues to live in a homosexual relationship with somebody else. That's the subtlety of pluralism. That's why this matters. This is why you need to know this. Here's a third aspect of pluralism we can learn from this text, and that's the virtue of pluralism in verse 21. Luke adds this kind of editorial comment Uh, He says, and this is kind of just for us to see. Uh, Some of your Bibles might put the sentence in a a parenthesis. 
It says, now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. If you have the LSB translation, something newer. Uh, What we learn from this and what we even see in our society today, as you'll see that this is so practical and speaks even to today, that pluralism is more than just a fact of reality. If you look around you, you see different beliefs, you see different religions, that's one thing. But now this idea of pluralism, this idea of new ideas, it has been elevated to the place of a virtue. It is almost a moral good to be diverse. You know that. There's this kind of unholy trinity, so to speak, today. Diversity, inclusivity, equality. And none of those things are intrinsically bad. Diversity is good. Equality is good. Who's against those things? But if the problem is, is they raise them up to the place of an intrinsic good, that they are virtuous in and of themselves, and it is subtly dangerous. Uh, you hear a lot today, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a virtue, virtue to be empathetic. And that's good, be empathetic. Some people might say, be open-minded. And I want to show you a verse when it comes to open-mindedness. Look at Proverbs 14 verse 15. Look at that real quick. It's just one verse. Proverbs 14, verse 15. It says, the naive believes everything, but the sensible, the discerning man considers his steps. You see that? The naive believes everything. The open-minded person, he just comes in with different ideas and he just accepts them. He's, he's not discerning. He's not measuring the truth to the word of God. He has no objective standard. It's totally subjective. He takes in all the ideas without any discernment, without any objective criteria, Nothing, no standard, no measure. And yet the irony is, is that they welcome all kinds of new ideas, but they're intolerant of only those ideas that are dogmatic, that claim to be certain. Well, guess what religion falls under that category? Christianity. Christianity makes certain claims. It makes dogmatic claims. It says that the God of the Bible is the only true God. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus wouldn't make a very good pluralist, let me tell you that. Not very open-minded, not embracing of different perspectives, not very empathetic. Let's look at a fourth aspect of pluralism, and we transition now to the sermon. We looked at the setting, we'll look at the sermon now. Uh, They were interested in enough with what Paul had to say that they gave him an invitation to speak at this place in Athens called the Areopagus. It's a hill uh, dedicated to this god, Aris. And now he's going to speak on this hill to a group of council people. Most of them are comprised of philosophers, Epicureans, Stoics, and various other philosophers. They want to hear what Paul has to say, probably to mock him, but we will come to the consequences later. We'll come to the response in a moment at the end of the chapter. But here's a fourth thing we learn about pluralism or that we can, at least, we can at least take from here. And that's the philosophy of pluralism. Look at verse 22 and verse 23 with me. Uh, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. For a while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription. What does it say? To an unknown God. I did a little digging into this and I realized that it's not just this one altar that says that, by the way. There are many, many altars in the Areopagus in Athens that says this very thing. I was actually personally standing on this hill a couple of weeks ago. I went through the Parthenon, I went through and I saw the different gods 
saw a lot of the idols, saw a lot of the altars. I was personally here and we read these chap- this chapter. It was amazing to see. There are many, many altars that says to an unknown God. And we learn something, or at least we can extract something about the nature of pluralism from here. And that is the philosophy of pluralism. That is the philosophy behind this idea. And that is, at least it is strongly implied here, that God cannot be known. We can't know God for certain. It says to an unknown God. At least it strongly implies that God can't be known and thus truth can't be known. And if truth can't be known, well, then we can just live however we want. Truth is really subjective. It's, you know, you have your truth and I have my truth. And really it has devolved to this place where truth is no longer determined by the objective word of the living God. It is now determined by subjective, relativistic human experiences. It is your experience that determines the truth. Your lived experience. That takes the place of truth. We can't really know anything, but it contradicts what Scripture tells us. There's a scene in John 18 where Pilate, you know, he's questioning Jesus. And Jesus says, those who are my sheep, they hear my voice. Those who are of the truth, they hear my voice. They recognize me. And then Pilate responds by saying, what is truth? You can even see in that day, there's this kind of relativistic, they don't really know truth. They don't think truth can be known. And yet you look at John 20, 31, it says, these things have been written so that you may believe in the Son of Man, so that you may believe in him and have everlasting life. First John 5, 13, it says, these things have been written so that you may know that you have eternal life. Friends, this is a very dangerous time. If, you're, if you don't know truth, it's a very dangerous way to live. That's a scary place to live in. It's almost like everything is cloudy and misty. I mean, who would want to live in that kind of world? I mean, we label this clarity for a reason. You want to push out all these crowding voices, these competing voices that are muddying the clear waters of the truth. And the way you do that is to recognize the scripture as the standard of truth. That's the philosophy behind it. And let's look at a fifth kind of aspect of pluralism. That's the myth of it. And that's where we get to Paul's sermon here. And I just want to show you, there's, there's something interesting about Paul's approach here when he preaches to these Athenians. There's something we, interesting we can learn from this, even as we seek to evangelize. Uh, the first thing, uh, which I've already noted, is that Paul attacks the philosophy at the root. Look at what he attacks. He's attacking the philosophy because he begins his sermon by saying, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He's using this altar that was dedicated and has this inscription to an unknown God. He's using that as his basis to make the case for the God of the Bible. He's saying, you don't know God. Let me tell you who God is. So we see that Paul attacks the philosophy. And maybe I think sometimes when we're seeking to evangelize, maybe we might slip into the temptation of arguing about surface level issues. We might argue about politics, or we might argue about some rabbit trail of theology. But until we come to the central thrust of who God is, and what the gospel is, and who Jesus Christ is, and what is it, what is it this written word, until we start in those very fundamental fundamentals of the faith, we're not going to get very far. So even as an evangelistic strategy, you want to think about attacking ideas at the core. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5. That's what he models here. And you notice another aspect of what Paul does, and that's how he adapts his message. 
He doesn't change the gospel, but he does adapt the message slightly. Uh, there's another instance where Paul gives a sermon to a group of people, a synagogue in Antioch, Pisidia. You can read about it in Acts 13, 16 to 41. And there he recounts Israel's history. He mentions a lot of the Old Testament. But here you'll notice he doesn't mention a lot of Old Testament quotes. Uh, don't misunderstand me. What he's saying here is thoroughly grounded in the Old Testament scriptures. But what he presents here is very strategic. He's going to show these Athenians. He's going to show these philosophical skeptics who God is. Uh, you see, if you don't know who God is, you don't know anything. You don't even know who you are. You don't know the world around you. Paul majors. He focuses on who God is. And he does this by highlighting four things about God. At first, he mentions that he at least shows that God is noble. He says, what you say is unknown. I'm going to show you as known. I'm going to proclaim God to you. So he at least begins with that, showing that God can be known. Then he begins his sermon by talking about God as creator. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. So you see that God is presented as the creator of everything around you. Uh, He's presented as the Lord. That is, he is the king of all things. And then he mentions that he does not dwell in temples with hands. He's attacking subtly the idols. Because where Paul is standing, the Parthenon is in, in viewing distance. I was standing there. You can see the Parthenon right, from where he's st- right around from where he was standing on the hill, on the Areopagus. And right in that Parthenon, right in this temple, there are tons of gods. And Paul is assaulting their religion. He's assaulting their view, their worldview, by saying, our God, the God of the Bible, does not dwell in temples made with human hands. In that temple was all kinds of gods. And Paul is saying, God created all these things. He does not need man. He does not need to dwell in his temple made by human hands. He talks about God as creator. You remember this audience he's speaking to, right? There's some Epicureans and there's some Stoics. And I'm not going to go into these philosophical systems at depth. I'm just going to mention a point about what they view on the topic of creation specifically. The Epicureans, they didn't believe that God created the universe. They kind of believe that it's a collection of atoms that operated together according to natural law and spawned the universe into existence. There there was no divine being. And if he was involved, he was involved at a very minimum and then he stepped away. And then the Stoics, their view of creation is that it was created by fire because fire is the most fundamental element. And then from fire, we have air. And then from air, we have water. And then from water, we have earth. And they believe that that's how the world was created. But did you notice something in common between those philosophies? Did you notice something in common? No God. In fact, when I looked at these different philosophical systems, both the Epicureans and, both the, and the Stoics, they don't believe in sin. They don't believe there is such a thing as sin. Their idea of living life is simply avoiding pleasure. That's for the Epicureans. They want to avoid pain, avoid trouble of mind, just live a good life. And the Stoics, they want to pursue moralism, but not righteousness. They just want to live a nice life, but without God, without any concept of God. And both of them conveniently also don't believe in hell. And you learn something very interesting here, and that is God is creator, and therefore he dictates morality. He gets to decide what is right and wrong. That if God creates you, that means you are logically accountable to him. Are you with me so far? If God created the world, if God created every single one of you in this room, that means logically every single one of you are accountable morally to God. 
That's why evolutionists want to discard God. That's why the Epicureans and the Stoics don't want God in the picture. Because if God exists, and if God created the world, and if God created every man, that means we are accountable to God. And they don't want that. Paul presents God as creator. He presents him as Lord of that creation. He presents him as sovereign, uh, independent of man. He even says in verse 26, he says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Even here we see that the God of the Bible is unique. Paul shows in this brief sermon that God is transcendent and yet he's also imminent. God is lofty, he's great, he's amazing, he's above all things, he's Lord, and yet he's also close, he's also personal. That's the amazing thing about the God of the Bible. He's not like the Greek gods who are kind of impersonal or maybe they're very much like men and they sin and they err. God is holy, he is without sin, sin, uh, totally just, and yet he makes a way for you to have personal relationship with him. That is very unique to Christianity. That is amazing truth of the gospel. That he's simultaneously transcendent, yet imminent. Grand, but close. Lofty, but personal. He shows that God is noble. He shows that God is creator. He shows that he's unique. And finally, verses 30 and 31, he shows God as judge. He says, therefore, he says, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, that is Jesus, whom he has appointed, having shown proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul talks about judgment. He talks about God as judge and the instrument or the the medium of that judgment is the resurrected Jesus. That one day they need to stand before this God for their sin. And so really, as we're looking at this myth of pluralism, you can see that it's a myth simply because on the surface, it looks like there's so many different ways, right? With pluralism, it looks like there's so many different religions, so many different ways When in reality, when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to religious pluralism, there's actually really two ways. You can take all the religions of this world and distill it into two categories. There's really just two categories of religion. It is religion based on human achievement. That's all the false religions. And then there's the religion that is based on divine accomplishment alone. Christianity says you cannot get into heaven by being a good person, by trying harder, by fixing up your act, by cleaning the outside of the cup. You need supernatural, total transformation that comes not from yourself, but from someone outside of you that is Jesus Christ. It comes by coming to the end of yourself and putting your trust in Jesus Christ and his righteousness, which is then given to you as a gift so that you have everlasting life, not because of anything you've done, but because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And yet, if you look at every other religion, it does not fit into that category. It fits into the category of human achievement. It fits into the category of being a good person, of trying harder. If you compare to the different religions, you see that all the false religions, they focus on moralism, fixing the outside, looking good. 
Whereas biblical Christianity talks about righteousness. You see that in Psalm 1, where the righteous and the wicked are contrasted. And it is the righteous that God knows, but the wicked that perish. You see two different emphases. When it comes to all the false religions of this world, they emphasize man. It is very self-centered. You'll notice that. Whereas when it comes to biblical Christianity, it is God who's emphasized. The chief end of man, the catechism says, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. As John Piper says that we are most satisfied when we're, when we're most, fulfilled, most fulfilled or most satisfied when we glorify him. That's when God is most glorified. We aim to glorify God. All the false religions aim to glorify the self. It's focused on self-worship, self-fulfillment, not God-worship. That leads us to the, the last aspect of pluralism. And that's the irony of it. Look at the end of the chapter 32 to 34. Now, when they heard uh, of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. That's they're laughing. They're joking. They don't really care. And others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. And so Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demaris. You see that there's three different groups here, three different responses. But if you come to the end of the passage, notice how many are saved, how many believe. It's only a few. The text says some joined him. And even this Jesus talks about. Somebody approaches Jesus in Luke 13 and says, Jesus, is it true that only few will be saved? And do you remember how Jesus responds? He says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who will enter through it. But the people who will actually end up in heaven are very few. They enter through the narrow gate, and they walk the narrow way. Here's the myth. Pluralism is saying there's so many different ways. There's actually two. Either you're on the narrow way or you're on the broad way. Every single one of you in this room either is on the broad way to hell or on the narrow way to heaven. But in this passage, we see an interesting reaction. They joke, at least some of them do, at this idea of resurrection. They joke at this idea of new life, and it's kind of ironic It's pretty ironic. It's pretty strange. That's why I've titled it The Irony of Pluralism. They want new ideas, but they don't want new life. Isn't that what resurrection offers? New life? They're willing to listen to new ideas, verse 21, but they don't want resurrection. They don't want new life. That's the irony. They want to listen to new ideas, not new life, and they're rejecting the very thing that the soul most deeply yearns for. They want reformation on the outside, not total regeneration. They're okay with external behavior modification, but they don't want true transformation of their heart, of their mind, and of their soul, and of their will to God. That's the irony of it, and it leads us to this big picture question that's, how do we know Christianity is true? That's the question I began with. How do we know that Christianity is true at the end of the day? I gave you a couple of reasons, but you can see it simply from general revelation. Josh talked about Psalm 19, how you look at the heavens, that they're telling of the glory of God so that no man is with excuse. Everybody knows that there's a God intuitively because you see the sun and the moon and the stars and the zebras and the giraffes and the ponies, whatever. You see all creation and you know intuitively there's a creator behind the creation. That's the general revelation. And then you look at the special revelation. That's the word of God. That's Jesus Christ. That's his word. 
In the Bible, it was composed over 1,400 years by over 40 different authors, 66 different books, and not a single contradiction in anything that the Bible says. This is a supernatural book. Not a single contradiction in the entirety of Scripture. 66 books, over 40 authors, composed over a period of 1,400 years. You can barely find the 10 people in this room today who would agree perfectly on anything. And yet you see something very interesting about the Word of God. And then the third thing is personal revelation. What I mean by that is the Word of God does what it says it will do. It transforms lives. It changes your desires. It gives you peace. It's a cure to anxiety. It gives you a love for Christ. It gives you a love for the truth. It gives you a love for holiness. The Bible actually transforms the entirety of your inner man. It transforms you. It gives you personal relationship with Jesus. And that's an amazing thing we have. So back to that elephant analogy. And the blind men. Somebody took that story and added a seventh man. And that seventh man saw. That seventh man was Jesus. Imagine there was a seventh man who is not blind, but he could see. Who perfectly saw all the truth. Paul says in Colossians 2 that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's nothing hidden in terms of knowledge and wisdom when it comes to Jesus Christ. He knows all things. And this person, this God who knows all things, has revealed his will in a book. And so we can trust this book because though we individually or collectively don't have access to all the truth that exists in the world, we have access to a God who knows all things. He's called omniscient, who has given us his word, which we can trust and obey. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this night. As we look at Acts 16, thank you for this true and errant word of God. Thank you for this scene where we can learn from the Apostle Paul and how he engaged in this pluralistic culture. Father, I pray for these students as they seek to gain clarity in the midst of this confused and and, uh, doubt-filled world. And Father, I do pray that their hope would be in you, that they would see and test the scriptures for themselves and see that there is no error in it, that it is totally and absolutely consistent, that it holds up to the most scrutiny, that it is absolutely reliable and trustworthy and can transform their lives. Pray that you bless them now. In your name we pray. Amen.